She walks by the sea, counting shells on the beach. One, two, three. She picks them up one by one, collecting their ocean suns. She puts them inside of her pocket and walks them back to the town. And she says to all of the people, I collect. Did all the sounds I collected all the sounds? Hello, and welcome to Collected Sounds. I'm your host, Amy L, and I'm really glad you're here. I know it's been a while since I've read to you, but I've been really busy with my other podcast, Volstead Land. And that one is different in that it's, first of all, a true story, or at least as true as we can gather. But at any rate, it's nonfiction. It's about a Minnesota mobster from the 1920s and 30s called Kid Can. Preparing for recording can be a little brutal. Since I have a co-host, I have to set up the recording equipment and space completely differently than this one. And also, it takes a ton of time researching everything. Not to mention that my possible ADHD makes me want to travel down every tangent and rabbit hole, so I have a hard time reining myself in. Anyway, that's my excuse. We're just wrapping up that season, and so I wanted to take a little bit of time here to do something other than marketing, editing, and research for that. I can see that people are still finding this podcast and listening, so I thought I should put out something new for you. So I hope you'll have a listen. Let me know what you think. You can reach me at collectedsounds at gmail.com, and there's more contact info in the show notes, including our new website. This story is called Afterward. And the author is Edith Wharton. This is from Wikipedia. It was first published in the 1910 edition of The Century Magazine, and later reprinted in her books, The Collected Short Stories of Edith Wharton and Tales from Men and Ghosts, both from 1910. It is an ironic ghost story about greed and retribution. The ghost comes for one of the main characters long after a business transgression where the character wronged another. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Chapter 1 Oh, there is one, of course, but you'll never know it. The assertion, laughingly flung out six months earlier, in a bright June garden, came back to Mary Boyne with a sharp perception of its latent significance as she stood in the December dusk, waiting for the lamps to be brought into the library. The words had been spoken by their friend Alita Stare, as they sat at tea on her lawn at Pangborn, in reference to the very house of which the library in question was the central, the pivotal, feature. Mary Boyne and her husband, in quest of a country place in one of the southern or southwestern counties, had, on their arrival in England, carried their problem straight to Alita Stare, who had successfully solved it in her own case, but it was not until they had rejected almost capriciously several practical and judicious suggestions that she threw it out. Well, there's Lang in Dorsetshire. It belongs to Hugo's cousins, and you can get it for a song. The reasons she gave for its being obtainable on these terms. Its remoteness from a station, its lack of electric light, hot water pipes, and other vulgar necessities, were exactly those pleading in favor with two romantic Americans perversely in search of the economic drawbacks which were associated, in their tradition, with unusual architectural felicities. 
I never should believe I was living in an old house unless I was thoroughly uncomfortable, Ned Boyne, the more extravagant of the two, had jocosely insisted. The least hint of convenience would make me think it had been bought out of an exhibition with the pieces numbered and set up again. They had proceeded to enumerate with humorous precision their various suspicions and exactions, refusing to believe that the house their cousin recommended was really Tudor till they learned it had no heating system or that the village church was literally in the grounds till she assured them of the deplorable uncertainty of the water supply. It's too uncomfortable to be true, Edward Boyne had continued to exult as the avowal of each disadvantage was successfully wrung from her. But he had cut short his rhapsody to ask, with a sudden relapse to distrust. And the ghost? You've been concealing from us the fact that there is no ghost. Mary, at the moment, had laughed with him, yet almost with her laugh being possessed of several sets of independent perceptions, had noted a sudden flatness of tone in Alita's answering hilarity. Oh, Dorsetshire's full of ghosts, you know. Yes, yes, but that won't do. I don't want to have to drive ten miles to see somebody else's ghost. I want one of my own on the premises. Is there a ghost at Lang? His rejoinder had made Alita laugh again, and it was then that she had flung back tantalizingly. Oh, there is one, of course, but you'll never know it. Never know it, Boyne pulled her up. But what in the world constitutes a ghost except the fact of its being known for one? I can't say, but that's the story. That there's a ghost, but nobody knows it's a ghost? Well, not till afterward, at any rate. Till afterward? Not till long, long afterward. But if it's been identified as an unearthly visitant, why hasn't its signalment been handed down in the family? How has it managed to preserve its incognito? Alita could only shake her head. Don't ask me. But it has. And then suddenly, Mary spoke up as if from some cavernous depth of divination. Suddenly, long afterward, one says to oneself, that was it? She was oddly startled at the sepulchral sound with which her question fell on the banter of the other two. She saw the shadow of the same surprise flit across Alita's clear pupils. I suppose so. One just has to wait. Oh, hang waiting, Ned broke in. Life's too short for a ghost who can only be enjoyed in retrospect. Can't we do better than that, Mary? But it turned out that in the event they were not destined to, for within three months of their conversation with Mrs. Stair, they were established at Lang. And the life they had yearned for to the point of planning it out in all its daily details had actually begun for them. It was to sit in the thick December dusk by just such a wide-hooded fireplace under just such black oak rafters, with the sense that, beyond the mullioned panes, the downs were darkening to a deeper solitude. It was for the ultimate indulgence in such sensations that Mary Boyne had endured for nearly fourteen years the soul-deadening ugliness of the Middle West, and that Boyne had ground on doggedly at his engineering till with a suddenness that still made her blink. The prodigious windfall of the Blue Star Mine had put them at a stroke in possession of life and the leisure to taste it. They had never for a moment meant their new estate to be one of idleness, but they meant to give themselves only to harmonious activities. She had her vision of painting and gardening against a background of gray walls, 
he dreamed of the production of his long-planned book on the economic basis of culture. And with such absorbing work ahead, no existence could be too sequestered. They could not get far enough from the world, or plunge deep enough into the past. Dorsetshire had attracted them from the first, by a semblance of remoteness out of all proportion to its geographical position. But to the Boynes, it was one of the ever-recurring wonders of the whole incredibly compressed island, a nest of counties, as they put it, that, for the production of its effects, so little of a given quality went so far, that so few miles made a distance, and so short a distance, a difference. It's that, Ned had once enthusiastically explained, that gives such depth to their effects, such relief to their least contrasts. They've been able to lay the butter so thick on every exquisite mouthful. The butter had certainly been laid thick at Lang. The old gray house, hidden under a shoulder of the downs, had almost all the finer marks of commerce with the protracted past. The mere fact that it was neither large nor exceptional made it, to the Boynes, abound the more richly in its special sense the sense of having been, for centuries, a deep, dim reservoir of life. The life had probably not been of the most vivid order. For long periods, no doubt, it had fallen as noiselessly into the past as the quiet drizzle of autumn fell, hour after hour, into the green fish pond beneath the yews. But these backwaters of existence sometimes breed, in their sluggish depths, strange acuities of emotion, and Mary Boyne had felt from the first occasional brush of an intenser memory. The feeling had never been stronger than on the December afternoon when, waiting in the library for the belated lamps, she rose from her seat and stood among the shadows of the hearth. Her husband had gone off after luncheon for one of his long tramps on the downs. She had noticed of late that he preferred to be unaccompanied on these occasions, and, in the tried security of their personal relations, had been driven to conclude that his book was bothering him, and that he needed the afternoons to turn over in solitude the problems left from the morning's work. Certainly, the book was not going as smoothly as she had imagined it would, and the lines of perplexity between his eyes had never been there in his engineering days. Then, he had often looked fagged to the verge of illness, but the native demon of worry had never branded his brow. Yet the few pages he had read so far to her, the introduction and a synopsis of the opening chapter, gave evidences of a firm possession of his subject and a deepening confidence in his powers. The fact threw her into deeper perplexity since, now that he had done with business and its disturbing contingencies, the other possible element of anxiety was eliminated. Unless it was health, then. But physically he had gained since they come to Dorsetshire, grown robuster, ruddier, and fresher-eyed. It was only within a week that she had felt in him the undefinable change that made her restless in his absence and as tongue-tied in his presence as though it were she who had a secret to keep from him. The thought that there was a secret somewhere between them struck her with a sudden smart rap of wonder, and she looked about her down the long, dim room. Can it be the house? she mused. The room itself might have been full of secrets. They seemed to be piling themselves up as evening fell like the layers and layers of velvet shadow dropping from the low ceiling, the dusky walls of books, the smoke-blurred sculpture of the wooded hearth. Why, of course, the house is haunted, she reflected. The ghost, Alida's imperceptible ghost, 
after figuring largely in the banter of the first month or two at Lang, had been gradually discarded as too ineffectual for an imaginative use. Mary had, indeed, become the tenant of a haunted house, made the customary inquiries among her few rural neighbors, but beyond a vague, they do say so, ma'am, the villagers had nothing to impart. The elusive specter had apparently never had sufficient identity for a legend to crystallize about it, and after a time, the Boynts had laughingly set the matter down to their profit and loss account, agreeing that Lang was one of the few houses good enough in itself to dispense with supernatural enhancements. And I suppose, poor, ineffectual demon, that's why it beats its beautiful wings in vain in the void, Mary had laughingly concluded. Or rather, Ned answered in the same strain, why, amid so much that's ghostly, one can never affirm its separate existence as the ghost. And thereupon, their invisible housemaid had finally dropped out of their references, which were numerous enough to make them promptly unaware of the loss. Now, as she stood on the hearth, the subject of their earlier curiosity revived in her with a new sense of its meaning, a sense gradually acquired through daily dose of contact with the scene of the lurking mystery. It was the house itself, of course, that possessed the ghost-seeing faculty that communed visually but secretly with its own past, and if one could only get into close enough communion with the house, one might surprise its secret and acquire the ghost sight on one's own account. Perhaps, in its long solitary hours in this very room, where she never trespassed until the afternoon, her husband had acquired it already and was silently carrying the dread weight of whatever it had revealed to him. Mary was too well-versed in the code of the spectral world not to know that one could not talk about the ghosts one saw. To do so was almost a great breach of good breeding, as to name a lady in a club. But this explanation did not really satisfy her. Well, after all, except for the fun of the frisson, she reflected, would he really care for any of their old ghosts? And thence she was thrown back once more on the fundamental dilemma the fact that one's greater or less susceptibility to spectral influences had no particular bearing on the case, since when one did see a ghost at Lang, one did not know it. Not till long afterward, Alita Stare had said, Well, supposing Ned had seen one when they first came, and had known only within the last week what had happened to him. More and more under the spell of the hour, she threw back her searching thoughts to the early days of their tenancy. But first only to recall a gay confusion of unpacking, settling, arranging books, and calling to each other from remote corners of the house as treasure after treasure of their habitation revealed itself to them. It was in this particular connection that she presently recalled a certain soft afternoon of the previous October, when, passing from the first rapturous flurry of exploration to a detailed inspection of the old house, she had pressed like a novel heroine, a panel that had opened at her touch on a narrow flight of stairs leading to an unsuspected flat ledge of the roof, the roof which, from below, seemed to slope away on all sides too abruptly for any but practiced feet to scale. The view from this hidden coin was enchanting, and she had flown down to snatch Ned from his papers and give him the freedom of her discovery. She remembered still how, standing on the narrow edge, he had passed his arm about her while their gaze flew to the long, tossed horizon line of the downs, and then dropped contentedly back down to trace the arabesque of yew hedges about the fish pond and the shadow of the cedar on the lawn. 
and now the other way, he had said, gently turning her about within his arm and closely pressed to him. She had absorbed, like some long-satisfying draft, the picture of the gray-walled court. The squat lions on the gates and the lime avenue reaching up to the high road under the downs. It was just then, while they gazed and held each other, that she had felt his arm relax and heard a sharp, Hello! that made her turn to glance at him. Distinctly, yes, she now recalled she had seen, as she glanced, a shadow of anxiety, of perplexity, rather, fall across his face, and, following his eyes, had beheld the figure of a man, a man in loose, grayish clothes, as it appeared to her, who was sauntering down the Lime Avenue to the court with a tentative gait of a stranger seeking his way. Her short-sighted eyes had given her but a blurred impression of the slightness and grayness, with something foreign, or at least unlocal, to the cut of the figure or its garb. But her husband had apparently seen more, seen enough to make him push past her with a sharp, wait, and dash down the twisting stairs without pausing to give her a hand for the descent. A slight tendency to dizziness obliged her, after a provisional clutch at the chimney, against which they had been leaning, to follow him down more cautiously. And when she had reached the attic landing, she paused again for a less definite reason. Leaning over the oak banister, to strain her eyes through silence of the brown sun-flecked depths below. She lingered there till, somewhere in those depths, she had heard the closing of a door. Then, mechanically impelled, she went down the shallow flight of steps till she reached the lower hall. The front door stood open on the mild sunlight of the court, and hall and court were empty. The library door was open, too and after listening in vain for any sounds of voices within, she quickly crossed the threshold and found her husband alone, vaguely fingering the papers on his desk. He looked up as if surprised at her precipitate entrance, but the shadow of anxiety had passed from his face, leaving it, even as she fancied, a little brighter and clearer than usual. What was it? Who was it? she asked. Who? he repeated with surprise, still all on his side. The man we saw coming toward the house. He seemed honestly to reflect. The man? Why, I thought I saw Peters. I dashed after him to say a word about the stable drains, but he had disappeared before I could get down. Disappeared? Why, he seemed to be walking so slowly when we saw him. Boyne shrugged his shoulders. So I thought. But he must have gotten up steam in the interval. What do you say to our trying a scramble up Meldon Steep before sunset? That was all. At the time of the occurrence, it had been less than nothing, had indeed been immediately obliterated by the magic of their first vision from Meldon Steep, a height which they had dreamed of climbing ever since they had first seen its bare spine leaving itself above the low roof of Lang. Doubtless, it was the mere fact of the other incidents having occurred on the very day of their ascent to Meldon that they had kept it stored away in the unconscious fold of association from which it now emerged for in itself it had no mark of the portentous. At the moment there could have been nothing more natural than that Ned should dash himself from the roof in pursuit of a dilatory tradesman. It was the period when they were always on the watch for one or the other of the specialists employed about the place, always lying in wait for them and dashing out at them with questions, reproaches, or reminders, and certainly in the distance the gray figure had looked like Peter's. 
Yet now, as she reviewed the rapid scene, she felt her husband's explanation of it to have been invalidated by the look of anxiety on his face. Why had the familiar appearance of Peter's made him anxious? Why, above all, if it was of such prime necessity to confer with that authority on the subject of the stable drains, had the failure to find him produce such a look of relief? Mary could not say that any one of these considerations had occurred to her at the time, yet, from the promptness with which they now marshaled themselves at her summons, she had a sudden sense that they must all along have been there, waiting their hour. Thank you for joining me. I hope you have enjoyed the story so far, and I hope you tune in next time for Chapter 2. I suggest you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss it. This podcast is independently produced by me, Amy, at Collected Sounds Productions. The theme song was composed especially for Collected Sounds by Canel. The music you hear behind the story is Beethoven's Sonata No. 19 in G minor, Andante. The artist is Daniel Vesey, and I got it from the Free Music Archive. Until next time!